On this episode of the podcast, I'll be talking with my good friend, J.D. Dawson. J.D. and I spent a semester abroad together in Valencia, Spain this past spring, and I was able to get to know him while we traveled around Europe together. The way that I've commonly described J.D. to other people is that he's one of the few people I know that's able to walk up to any person on any street, regardless of the language or country that you're in, and spark an interesting conversation. That's the type of person that he is. Keep that in mind before we listen to this podcast. JD is an aspiring doctor and hopes to specialize in gastroenterology once he completes his schooling. In this conversation, we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, how we can change the police force in our country, how we can use other countries such as Japan to help remodel and restructure our society, how Instagram movements affect Black Lives Matter, and what change means to JD. In this conversation, I take the role of the average person my age who may or may not have all the basic facts when it comes to the major points of the Black Lives Matter movement. The goal is simply to answer the basic questions and then use that information to help other people form their personal opinions. I hope this podcast is helpful to anyone trying to learn about the movement or at least a little bit interesting to hear JD's point of view. Enjoy. Are you working? What kind of work do you do? How we doing, bro? Adam Gold in the flesh. Good, good man. Good. I'm just, I'm trying to do my part, stay inside. You know, numbers are spiking, but just hanging out in the house. I'm studying for the MCAT right now, and that's kind of been a lot, but um, you know, important, very important to me. So, mm. hanging out. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the MCAT. Uh, what what actually goes into that? You said you were on a kind of crazy schedule, like eight hours a day or something like that. Yeah, it's um, I think it all depends on your timeline. You know, you can take more more or less time to study for it. But my window is like three months, and you know, I got a ton of time alone at home, and I'm I'm trying to maximize my studying. So, you know, I wake up around this time, like seven a.m., and maybe work out, and I I have like a like a morning block, afternoon block, and a night block. And I just kind of let my meals um, split up my work times. Mm. And a lot of content review, just like reading to these books, doing practice problems, you know, practice exams, practice quizzes. It's a lot. It's a lot. But yeah, it's not as bad like as I thought it was going to be. So. Mm. Do you find that uh, like studying that many hours a day is um, like I have a tough time like uh, retaining that much information. Do you, do you find that like it helps or I don't know? Well, I... I can first. I'll say I've never studied as much in my life. You know, mm-hmm. even in, in, in like the busiest part of the semester, I was probably doing maybe like four hours a day back, like five hours a day. Yeah. But it's just sort of like a mindset that I committed to. I committed to doing this much study because I mean, you should see my my practice books. I have like eight of them, like this big each. Yeah. You know, I, I I committed to learning those things, and luckily I've already taken those courses. Like I've already taken all the biochemistry and organic chemistry and physics. I've already taken them. So when I'm re- reviewing that content, that's not like fresh learning. Like I've seen it before. It's more, more just like recalling the concepts and stuff. So it's, I, I, I surprisingly, I'm retaining. I'm retaining a good bit of it. Uh, what's your goal for 
in the field of medicine? Like, where are you trying to? I know you're a public health major, right? Uh-huh. My goal is to be um, a re- like the best resource I can be for underserved communities. So, first of all, as a physician, right, like providing care to those who need it. Uh, interested in like family medicine, maybe emergency medicine. More recently, actually, I've been kind of interested in the field of gastroenterology, which is like your digestive tract and uh, you know your your gut, your gut health, which is really interesting too. I know you're familiar with that. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested in that because uh, you know in the world of public health, a big theme is like resources, right? Like what are the resources that people don't have that cause them to have like worsened health so let's say for example you don't live anywhere near a grocery store that you can afford you know nutritious foods that's obviously a big barrier to your health because you're going to be forced to eat out eat junk food fried food processed food but you know as a gastroenterologist right i could maybe take patients from these low-income areas and help them understand more about their diet and like maybe advise them to make like the small changes they could make right like okay here here's what you absolutely want to avoid and then as more than a physician, right, I could maybe advocate to, let's say, a local food bank, right, and say, I know you guys aren't in this proximity, but there's actually a lot of people in this area of town that don't have access to foods. You know, what can we do to try to set up, like, let's say, meal delivery services? Or what, what can be done to set up, like, a pop-up farmer's market? And here, you know, just because, like, I, I'm able to identify certain patients based on their geography who have a need. Right, as a physician, more than just giving them care, I can't really do much about their living situation. But maybe I can be an advocate. Maybe I can, I can, you know, talk to community organizations, local government, to try to create those connections to do more than just care as a doctor. So mm. that would be an idea of what I imagine my career might might look like. That's that's really cool. Uh, yeah, I think I think the nutrition thing is really popping off. It's a growing field, and uh, the gut microbiome, especially like the gut brain connection yeah. and all that stuff. Is, is pretty wild. It's it's it is wild. A lot of people don't know about it. I'm not that I'm some expert, but um, I, I I conducted research like the first two years of my undergrad on actually cancer, cancers from the stomach and the gut. And I, what I would do is like I, I'd actually get a piece of flesh right from surgery from a surgeon in like Maryland or something. He would send it to our lab. We would uh, basically dice up this piece of flesh, extract a number of different types of cells from it. Some are cancer cells, some are bacteria cells. And we would take all the bacteria cells that we could find, right, and I, I identify them. And the idea was we're going to take the cancer cells and regrow them in individual environments, but instead introduce different types of bacteria to this cancer cell's growth. And what we found was some cancer cells actually grow more because of certain bacteria. Mm. Other cancer cells actually die because of bacteria, which is which is kind of crazy to me that the, there's such a diversity of, of bacteria that can actually contribute or, you know, take away from cancer cell growth. Mm. So you're saying if somebody has a, a diet that's like uh, giving them good fiber or good uh, good bacteria in their gut, they're going to be able to fight off cancer or just be at less risk? Well, that would be the next step in research is, is really finding out what are the capabilities of this good bacteria. Yeah. And we know, like you said, we know it connects to your immune system. We know it connects to your nervous system. Mm-hmm. We know that has a lot to do with your digestive health and your weight. Cognitive so, function as well, for sure. That's, absolutely. And that's why gastroenterology is so interesting to me because once we accept that food is a, a medicine, right? Food is yeah. essentially a medicine. That can be the framework in which we approach all kinds of health problems and I wonder what the limits are. Mm. Have you heard of uh, Have you heard of Mike Mark Hyman at all? 
No, no, I haven't. He's a uh, he's like the prime advocator for um, food as medicine, like that whole movement. Like he's he's the guy at the top of the chain. I would definitely I'm recommend checking him out. Mark Hyman, interesting. Yeah, he's got he's got a podcast on Spotify and I mean all the major platforms, but. Yeah, he has some really, um, really interesting ideas. We don't have to take a religious turn into this combo, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I consider myself to be pretty spiritual, and, and you know, I try to be as in tune with the divine as I can. Mm-hmm. And I think that what I personally realized is that religion is not as much about the organized part of it, not as much about like what others are doing, yeah. and, and more so is about your own personal relationship with God. And a lot of that has to do with your own habits, like who you are as a person, what you do every day. And you can't deny that like what we eat and our health is such a core core part of who we are. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I really I really consider health as its own uh, version of religion. Like you said, like it's all about the rituals and disciplines that you have that it makes. I don't know. It's kind of like a it's a, a lens to see life through kind of like. Using right. food as medicine, using exercise as medicine, instead of viewing it as like work or something like that. All right, All right, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. I like that a lot. You, um, you. What are your thoughts on yeah. uh, the protests and everything going on right now? Yeah, you know, it's. I, I've had a number of conversations about this, and I, I, I always find myself at a loss for words because there's just so, there's so much to unpack. There's so much to unpack, mm-hmm. and what I what I think people are starting to realize is that this issue is very much like an onion you know there's so many layers to this and you know the layers will eventually take us back to the origin of our country right mm-hmm. the very origin of what this nation was founded on was like the framework was the basis for the way our society functions today and what people are starting to realize is that you know, we say things like, ah, oh, the system is, is broken or, or, you know, this, the system is flawed. But, I mean, I have to disagree. I, I don't think the system is broken. I, I believe that the system is functioning exactly how it was designed to function. And people are coming to terms with the fact that, wow, we, you know, we've been living in this system for so long that maybe I've been lucky enough to not have to deal with these problems. But, man, a lot of people are getting the short end of the stick. And, of course, it's not it, – it's a racial issue without a doubt. But I think more importantly to note that it's a power issue, right? It's a power issue that, um, of course, the state itself, you know, the rich are using various different vehicles in which that they're oppressing uh, other groups, right? And the police are just another example of that. You know, we, we, we would love to live in a society where police kind of have a minimal role because, you know, I, almost like doctors, right? Doctors have to heal and police essentially have to, you know, serve and protect. But wouldn't we love to live in a world where we didn't need doctors, right? We, didn't, we never got sick or a world where we didn't need police, you know, and, and there was no crime. And as idealistic as that is, because there is a niche for that in society, because there's a need for people to serve and protect, it can often be exploited to uh, abuse people. And that's, that's from a historical sense, that's what's been going on. And recently, it seems like people are starting to understand that, that we have this system that was never meant to benefit us in the first place. It was essentially a vehicle of state oppression. And it's, 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 it's very, very broken, right? If, if you want to take the perspective that it should be serving a purpose, it's not serving that purpose at all. 
And it's kind of amazing to me to see people that are starting to wake up. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, what do you think the first step is like regarding the police? Like, how would you like to see that um, that system? It may it may be broken. Um, how would you like to see it change? Man, well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, kind of a buzzword I've seen in the social justice world. Uh, and they say it's the, the demilitarization of the police. And, you know, I think that if you look at, like, like planet Earth is a crazy place, right? It's very Without true. A doubt. It's a crazy place. A lot of crazy stuff goes on. But what, one thing that's been kind of consistent in the past 4,000 years of, uh, you know, human civilization, 5,000 years, is that humans love to go to war, right? Right. We we every every all of history is littered with these wars hmm. and these power struggles. We like to stir up drama. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> we we do, and and it comes from it comes from um, from like a anthropological perspective. Right. Hmm. Our primal selves have this desire for power because we understand that our, in order to survive, we have to obtain certain resources and have certain benefits over our our competitors, and and that's what I, I ultimately believe drives this need for power. So we go to these wars to, to obtain these resources, to exploit people, to get slaves, whatever, right? And what I've recognized is that need doesn't go away even within a society, mm. right? Even even once we say, okay, this is our land, you know, the United States has its conquest outside the United States, but even within the United States, there is often this continuous struggle for power, Right. And there's there's a there's a hundred different players like there's so many players, but one consistent player is the, is the government, right? The government, in order to maintain power order, they have to they have to take certain steps to, to maintain power order. And you know, I could get into the whole like mind control and suppression of, of society through through media, but that's 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 another conversation. Maybe we can get into that later. But without a doubt, I believe that the police, right, are kind of the on the ground forces that the government can use to maintain control of the populations. And I don't think that's an inherently bad thing, right? Every every society needs to use some sort of, uh, of method to maintain order. The only problem is that each individual community, right, each individual community has a demographic makeup that leaves certain populations open to exploitation by this power. And because of our own nature, it's never just about maintaining order. It becomes about obtaining power and controlling people. For example, if you look at a city like New York City, right, the NYPD, I started this off with the militarization of the police, so I'll come back to that. The NY, NYPD has, a, a tro- has an atrocious history of, of utilizing their resources as police to effectively over police black and brown bodies the most recent example is the stop and frisk law right stop and frisk was an official law mandated right by the city of new york that gave police the power to stop and frisk anyone that they thought was suspicious enough to have been committing a crime right and when you leave that like that is an incredible power to give to police right because it gives them the power to stop anybody basically violating their rights just off of perception. So you have two factors at play. Number one is you, you give them additional powers 
And then you base it off of their perception. If our perception is naturally flawed, then the way that we utilize that perception through our power is going to have some sort of repercussion. So what we saw is in, the, I believe it was maybe like a 10-year period before they actually uh, rescinded the law, but under stop and frisk, right, we saw thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of interactions between the police and people that they thought were suspicious, which I believe the number was close to like over 80% or 90% were black and brown people. And so the, the police have been over-militarized in the sense that they continue to gain power and abuse that power. And the easiest example is, like I said, the militarization of the police. NYPD, right? If you look up their budget, okay, they have the budget of a of a of a small country, right? Their, their GDP is something like four billion, four billion dollars for a police a budget. Now, of course, police have expenses, but when you look at how that budget breaks down, they they possess a large number of, of military grade uh, manufactured equipment from the United States military, right? They they possess tanks. Mm-hmm. Right, copters, even planes, right? Which is crazy, right? Why, why does the NYPD need to possess such such high power equipment? And ultimately, like I said, you you militarize the police, you give them the power to be able to control people more. You combine that that control with their own biases, tend to be racist and discriminatory biases, mm-hmm. which results in over policing of people, a lot of unnecessary deaths, <laughs> and instead of like preventing the crime right often the the police presence sometimes creates crime it sometimes insinuates crime sometimes encourages it they go out looking for crime and in the end you know they're not really serving their purpose so we'll start off with demilitarization do you do you agree with the movement to take funding away from the police and if so like what level are you at because i know a lot of people are like we should just strip the police completely a lot of people want to take it from 100 percent to zero where are you on that scale Man, that's a that's a hard question to answer because it's like it's it's so idealistic just to talk about, you know. Um, but I'll, I'll give an example. I'll give an example. So I was in Japan last year, right? Mm-hmm. And something that I noticed was like police presence. Right? Is the police? They didn't do anything. Okay. Like every time I saw a police car, it was just driving around. Like they just be they just drive around. You know, the average police you saw on the street, right? unarmed and he's like an older dude like a really skinny kind of older dude and i i felt a police presence right mm-hmm. but it almost felt like they didn't have much to do okay and i you know the more that i i, I lived in japanese society i began to realize that that the development of certain sectors of the of society when you actually develop those and we can go into what that means you kind of take away the back end of like the consequences of not having those things developed. So, you know, there, as far as I saw, there were no slums in Japan, right? Of course, there's some, there's a number, amount of poverty, right? But, but Japan has one of the uh, highest standards of living, living in the world. And there's an abundance of research that shows that, that crime is often the result of poverty. And there's an uh, interconnected relationship between crime and poverty. So we look at a society like Japan, like Singapore, in which they've developed the infrastructure so that those at the bottom of society have all the basics covered, right? You're a citizen, you can get free health care. Unemployment, super low, right? Neighborhoods are clean, they're developed, you have safe streets, right? The economy is thriving. Is that these sectors are developed to the point where they're not 
the crime isn't low because there's some action taken against crime that's super strict. Crime is low because the reason that would cause someone to commit crime is absent, right, for the most part. So the conversation about defunding the police has has this, like, shock appeal because we live in a society where police presence has always been there. We can't imagine a world without police. Mm. And I, I, I want to challenge that notion instead of thinking about let's defund the police, I would say let's think about what areas of society are lacking funding the most. What, what types of communities need jobs desperately? What kind of communities desperately need basic infrastructure like education? And, and don't think of it as we're going to defund the police, but instead we need to be flooding money in toward these sectors that are the basics. Like I'm talking about the basics. You know, like I just said, education, right? For what reason are there schools in lower income communities that don't have, like, you know, the right books or the right technological resources? Mm-hmm. Or maybe they just have really poor quality teachers, whatever. You know, that, that should be our focus, right? Because crime, crime is like a result of a lot of things. And the way that we can really prevent crime is not through more police, but it's through more jobs. It's through development of these sectors. Mm-hmm. So, I, I do believe that, like I said, in, in some in some police departments, they have insane budgets, right? Like they have billions of dollars, or billions of dollars that instead of being used as a community resource, it's almost like a response to these broken communities that already are dealing with these problems, right? They, they, these broken communities, very impoverished communities. You can ramp up your police budget all you want, but that's not going to solve the deep problems of these communities, which are infrastructure. So in a sense, I, I do think that there are some police departments that need to be defunded. I don't think that there needs to be an absence of police presence. I think that any steps we're going to be taking are going to be gradual, one at a time. But I would love to see billions of dollars being put into education and infrastructure and, and, and jobs. Mm-hmm. But I'll go back to something I said at the beginning, right, which is that we have this broken system. The system is functioning exactly how it was designed, right? These, these poor communities of color – they, they didn't become poor on accident, right? They were they were strategically placed in certain parts of town away from, you know, maybe the more affluent areas. And they're kind of like put to the side with the purpose of failing. And that's the ultimate thing we need to deal with is we are a country founded on this principle of, of subjugating certain populations into poverty to be able to control them and exploit them. And that is something we have to come to terms with is that that's what kind of our country has been operating on. What are your thoughts on um, Blackout Tuesday and, and how that went on social media? I was I was very um, to be honest I didn't know I didn't know what the right thing to do was because I to be honest I I had heard a little bit about what was going on um, like the week before and everything that had happened with all um, a lot of the issues that had gone down um, and I saw you know I see Blackout Tuesday I, I look into what it is and I'm just like. Uh, do I post or I'm not, I'm not somebody who posts on Instagram all that much. And I'm not somebody who likes to, um, just post based on what other people are posting. And, um, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of people hopped on the train without having all the information. And that's what I didn't want to do. So, um, do you think, do you think that was a successful, a successful movement? Obviously got a ton of people on board, but do you think it spread the information and is it sticking within people on the personal level? I think I mean I think there's a good side and a bad side too. On one hand, any any effort to increase awareness has some value, has some inherent value. 
you know, when, when if we if we do something and increase awareness, there is some value to that. But on, on the other hand, I would say that the, anyone's reason for becoming an advocate, right? If you're black or if you're white, it doesn't matter. That has to come from within, right? It has to come from your own desire to have your voice heard and to bring awareness to some issue. And what I don't like about that particular movement was that it didn't come from a place within. It came from uh, an external force, right? Yeah, Which was everyone else is doing it, so I should do it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there may be some value. Like someone may have, someone somewhere may have become more aware that you know this is an issue of broad light. But at the same time, how many people who clearly didn't care, who clearly had not said a word before, right? Didn't say anything after. They used that to feel good about themselves and feel like they were contributing to a movement that's very important, right? And I, 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 I guess I would say I saw more among white people, right? Maybe white people that hadn't said anything before. They were, you know, perfectly fine putting this black square because think about it. They literally posted nothing, right? They didn't, mm-hmm. do, they didn't say anything. They just posted a black square yeah. and a hashtag and it makes them feel like maybe they contributed, which isn't bad, right? We're, I would like to see more people contribute and have their voice heard because they can't hold it in any longer. They they feel like they need to say something. Yeah. And that's the place I think uh, that this movement should get to is getting to people's hearts instead of just using social media to feel good about yourself that like you're contributing. Mm. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with that. And I think um, that next step, so for me personally, I saw I saw the Black, Black, uh, Blackout Tuesday movement. I looked into it. I didn't post, but I looked into it and I've, I've researched a lot um, and then the other night I had a conversation with my family about it and we really, um, we got all the views out on the table and we kind of um, just weighed everything and talked about it for, I don't know, a solid hour and a half. And it was really good, really good conversation just to get everybody um, on the same level and kind of like weigh each other's views. Um, so I think that's, I think that's the first step in, in my point of view, because it worked well for me. What do you think the next step is um, after, after those personal conversations, how can you, um, how, how can you make a change in other ways? Sure. Um, well, great, great first start, you know, conversing about it and, and, and developing your perspective on it. I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of white people, it's not that they didn't care. It's just that this issue was never in their, you know, in their views. They never really had a reason to develop a perspective on it, but developing that perspective is the first step. And I would say that, you can even go a step further and be in this continual state of wanting to understand the issue, mm. right? And, and that's why social media is a bit dangerous because it's become our main source of information. But continue doing your research on the systemic racism in this country and we can get into it. There, there's, like I said, it's like an onion, right? There's so many layers that will eventually take us to the realization that it is the, the DNA of our country, right? Was based off of the exploited labor, the exploited labor of people who were determined to be subhuman, right? Without that view of society, if, if, if the founding fathers and the colonialists, the colonists, if they never saw slaves as subhuman and were willing to exploit their labor to develop the economy, right? And the reason the economy is developed as this is because of, of slave labor. If that never happened, if our country never founded those beliefs, we wouldn't be where we are today, right? So it's we're going to just keep peeling back the layers. So first step, have conversations, gain the issue, right? Gain perspective on the issue. 
Um, there's a few more stages, but the ultimate, the first like point that you want to get to is community activism, right? When you're asking yourself, all right, you have all these roles, right? Maybe you're a student, you're a community leader, you're in this organization, right? You have a lot of people actually have a number of, of positions and platforms that they utilize for their own benefit, right? That's why we have them. The question you should be asking yourself is, how can I utilize my positions of power, my perspectives, to benefit those who have effectively been subjugated by society? So let's say, you know, you and me, we're college students, and we're in these community service organizations, right? And every year, right, we see all these college organizations that love doing dance marathon, right? Nothing against dance marathon. I love. Are you familiar with dance marathon? I am, yeah. Okay. We love we love dance marathon, but <laughs> it's a wild event. Know, it's it's crazy crazy time, you know. When for maybe anyone doesn't know, dance marathon is essentially a fundraiser dancing to raise money for uh, Children's Miracle Network, which is a children's hospital that provides you know free care. We should be asking ourselves, you know, why are we not, as well as doing dance marathon, why are we not finding the communities in our area, right, in Boston? in South Carolina, within our communities, maybe finding children who are from poor neighborhoods who don't have a good education system, right? Why don't we take time every month to meet them, encourage them, tutor them, hang out with them, spend time with them, right? Because, you know, we have all these kids who are coming from broken communities. Their communities are not providing them the resources they need to become a successful adult who can participate in society, who can get a job, participate in the economy, and the cycle continues. What needs to happen is that is that all people who are like you and me, who are very privileged to be in thriving communities, we need to extend our resources to the communities that need it the most because the government simply refuses to do it. So within your own communities, ask yourself, what can I do to benefit the underserved people in my own community? And I promise you, they're there. No matter where you live, there are underserved people in your community. You can live in North Dakota, right? And there will be underserved Native American people who need, right, resources because they don't have them. Mm -hmm. You can be anywhere. Boston has an incredible history of, of racism and segregation, right? There are so many communities that you can do. Now, that's not now, – now, give me, don't get me wrong. This does not mean that we should develop these savior complexes where we're like, I'm going to go save these kids, right? But it's if you can have conversations, right? You can maybe you, you want to contact a children's home, right, for underserved youth. Reach out saying, "Hey, we're a group of volunteers. We'd love to come spend time with these kids. Maybe build a relationship." What what is our place, right? You want to you want to come from a place, a humble place of asking, "What can you do?" But take the effort to reach out, and and that it doesn't stop there, right? You can find homeless people in the community, right? Maybe who who don't ever get human interactions, right? People don't recognize that homeless people are ostracized and. They, they don't they're not even a part of society to some people they're ignored you know go visit soup kitchens and serve them and have conversations with them have real conversations with them mm. so the basis of this is recognizing that you are in a position of society that is incredibly beneficial and it is your obligation to extend your privilege to extend your heart to people who have been underserved and you, it's up to you to come up with creative solutions about how you can benefit your community so that's the next step is community activism coming from a real place of wanting to do good by others, coming from a humble place, not one of, of trying to save people, right? You're not just anyone's savior, but from a humble place of extending your heart and your hand and your dollars to the communities that need it the most around you. Hmm. 
I like that. That's a great point. Um, I think overall these past, I want to say three to four months, um, have been an opportunity for people to step back from um, the life that they called their reality, um, jobs, whatever, going into the office every day, um, being entrenched in work and all that, thinking about money in the stock market. I think it's been an opportunity for us to really step back and um, look for those for those people that are willing. Um, uh, do you know we're around family more? We uh, connecting with family. I think looking at the things that are really important have been opened up a little bit. Um, and I think I think that that's where the change is coming from. Um, it may not be. It may be out of anger or um, distrust. Um, for the movement that's going on now with Black Lives Matter. Um, but I really think um, with this time, if if it isn't already happening, there, there needs to be a step back and we need to focus less on the um, money and the power and all that. We were talking about it's just human, uh, human nature to want those things. I think it's important for us to look at the humanist side of things and focus on how can we help the other people um, around us. And I, that's what it's really about. We've created so many um, external wants and needs that aren't actually aren't actually necessary for us to be happy and healthy human beings. So I really I really like what you're saying about that. You hit it on the head, Matt. It's, it's we have to let go of these things that have been we've we've convinced ourselves that we need, right? And this whole epidemic has connect people more than ever I feel as if a lot most of society has kind of been like some people struggling and then other people perfectly fine but this this caused inconveniences for everybody right everyone no matter how privileged you are you know you can get a taste of what life is like for someone in poverty who you know can't uh, I'm trying to think of something like you know you can't you go to the grocery store right and you can't find something you need right someone who's poor they, if they can't afford it they, then they can't they can't leave empty handed mm-hmm. during the pandemic if they you know they, they got rid of all the toilet paper you got nothing you know you yeah. know things like that where people who have never really struggled getting a taste of it you know and I think that kind of let a lot of white people and don't get me wrong white people are the drivers behind a lot of these a lot of these social movements, right? Because black people have been advocating for their own rights this whole time. Mm-hmm. But it's when white people got on board, they really understood, you know, you started seeing police beat up white people. Like, that's crazy, you know? If you have you have people who have never really connected with the struggle, they, they see it. They hear these stories. They connect with it. They empathize with it. And coming from a place of empathy, that's powerful, man. That, that's what changes hearts. So it's been amazing to see the nation start this, change of heart it's been really really makes me really happy honestly mm. yeah empathy is everything feeling feeling like the what other people are feeling is everything and I think struggle struggle plays a huge role in that too like uh, just having just just seeing like uh, I don't know the possibility of like something coronavirus is tough for sure and it, it like put a lot of people um, uh, out and and just like not knowing what to do because they didn't uh, they weren't used to having the uh, the free time or the, the I don't know put a lot of people out of jobs and all that but I think I think the struggle part is good and I think it um, awakens a lot of people like to really like 
be like, okay, I got to fight this. Like, I got to stand up. I got to pick something to, um, pick something I want to do. And I want to like delve into that. Um, I think that's, I think that's how, uh, also, also how human nature works. Um, we, we're fighters for sure. It just like, it takes a little bit of struggle for us to get to that point of fighting. So I want to, I want to ask you, um, to kind of sum the conversation up, uh, and just like get the overall point of view. What, um, what do you want to see for change? Like, it doesn't have to be, um, doesn't have to be specifically towards the Black Lives Matter movement or um, however you want to attest to it. What what is change for you? What is change for me? What is change? Another question. Change. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm hopeful. I, I'll always remain hopeful and have faith in people that eventually, as a society, will get to a place where distribution of resources is more just than it currently is, and as, as certain people get richer and richer, like really, really rich, it's a shame to see a lot of people slip into some of the lower brackets just because those resources aren't there. I, I Change for me is the development of the poorest areas of our own country. You know, I mean, I'm from South Carolina, and it's in some parts of our state, like the state I live in, certain counties, the, you know, maternal child mortality rate, right? Like the likelihood of a baby you know, having successful birth are equal. The mortality rate is equal to some third world countries, right? Just because some communities don't have access to health care, those mothers don't get the prenatal postnatal care they need, all those children end up dying, you know? And that it to me is a tragedy in and of itself, but also because it's so preventable. Right? To someone like me it seems so simple that all that needs to be done is just take the money from over here and put it over there, right? Seems so simple, but it's not. But I'm glad to see that people are starting to recognize the problem. The problem that there's a severe inequity of resources, that there are severe systems in place that subjugate people and let other people profit off of them. I think once we slowly, the majority of people start to address these issues, that they, they can be changed, and we don't need some bloody revolution for it to happen, you know? Uh, are, are there going to be forces fighting against this movement? Sure, of course. But if as we continue to reform ourselves and really know what's going on, we're going to want that change. So um, I would love to see more resources in poor communities, you know? And I would love to see the systems in which people are profiting off of subjugation of others. I would love to see them still be dismantled. Mm. Okay. It's a great point. Um, I like that. I like that perspective. Um, so, JD, I actually have to get going, um, and this has been a great conversation. And I wish you the best in uh, your studies for the MCAT and um, your uh, your push for this uh, for your movement of your culture and society to um, be furthered in in a positive direction. I, hey man, I, you know I appreciate you, man. We, I miss you dearly. Uh, I wish we could still be in Spain sipping wine somewhere, but uh, until then, you know, take care of yourself. You know, stay informed. Call me whenever and ever you want to talk. You know, and hopefully we can see each other soon. I'll be down to South Carolina. He's up. Fact. So I'll be in Boston. Maybe I'll interview at a med school up there or something. Sounds good. All right, you got a place to stay. All right, brother. I'll catch you. Thanks. Take it easy. Thanks man. for coming on today. Appreciate it. Peace out. Peace.